Section 59 of The World War. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Colleen McMahon. The World Story, Volume 15, The World War, edited by Horatio W. Dresser. Section 59. The Escape of a Merchantman, 1914, by Edward Noble. The following narrative is the last episode in the thrilling voyage of an English sailing ship, the Juggernaut, bound homeward with grain at the beginning of the war, and arriving at last in the danger zone where enemy raiders and submarines may be expected to appear at any moment. The Editor So far the Navy had kept faith with them, shepherding them, smiling at their sluggish march. The Navy, it appeared, knew the Juggernaut quite as well as her crew knew her. But now, since they had squared away for the run home, the Navy had become invisible. They were sorry for that. They had grown accustomed to see the gray holes popping up and coming to greet them. They missed the news they gave, diluted and censored as it was. They missed the new comradeship which had been born of this war. The acknowledgment, at last, that the mercantile marine was an admitted safeguard. That was splendid. It gave a new color to all their work. Yesterday, a couple of trawlers had steamed past, punching into the breeze which kept the juggernaut humming. But the men did not connect them, the trawlers, with the navy. They wondered stolidly what fishermen were doing so far from home. Then, on a day when they drew down the Irish coast, they heard the thunder of guns so distant that they wondered what sort of luck had permitted the squareheads, the Germans, to get so far west. They babbled over this for an hour saw more trawlers and confessed they were done at noon a destroyer vomiting smoke from four funnels came full tilt from the east and halted a moment alongside to ask had they seen anything of the enemy the juggernaut had seen nothing and said so but we heard gunfire out west captain mason added it went on for an hour is there any news none we're after one of his cruisers seems to have gotten through though make the best of your breeze into the land captain if you want to see it and he was off, dancing into a sea that tried to swallow him. He moved in a Niagara of spray, leaping like the cars on a switchback. If they wanted to see home, they whispered the officer's phrase, staring at the dim seascape, wondering, thrilled. At last they were in touch with the war. They talked incessantly of it, reiterating the facts they had gleaned. They longed for the speed of that destroyer, and questioned whether the Navy would have any use for them when they got in. There had been hints of raiders and submarines. Captain Mason knew just how much and how little to pass on to the crew, and he succeeded in keeping them enthusiastic. He had been told, among other things, that if he had an opportunity, he must sink any enemy ship, and he looked at the dim bulk of this grain carrier and acknowledged her power and dawn. But he was not prepared for what happened. For some time a dense blob of smoke had lain over the eastern horizon in the direction of the channel. It had grown suddenly out of nothing, far off, and shortly after the destroyer had passed them. It was a smoke blotch similar in character to that made by the destroyer, but very much denser. Captain Mason decided, when his attention had been drawn to it, that it must be the smoke of a squadron, and again became engrossed in the details of sailing. There ensued an interval given over to the men's song as they hauled, and at the end of it all hands clustered in the waist to watch that growing cloud of smoke. It was nearer already by six or seven miles. 
they began to pick out the funnels that threw it, to count them. Two or three were on the leading ship, the rest astern. They decided presently there were three, if not four vessels astern, destroyers or cruisers. Then quite suddenly the leading ship fired. That made them silent. They could not tell where the shells fell. They only knew they did not come near the juggernaut. The excitement became intense. Here they were in the middle of it, listening to the thud of guns, watching the flashes. They guessed it was an enemy ship chased by some of ours. The vessels which were astern made no reply, only their smoke cloud became blacker, more detached from that of the leading vessel. It was wonderful and very grim. A race for life, there could be no doubt about that. And as they formulated their theories, twin puffs of greenish smoke lighted momentarily by tongues of flame leapt forth, and far, far astern two columns of water lifted without sound into the air. The men rubbed hands and broke into a cheer. Instinctively, they had come to understand that this vessel, which approached at such speed, was the enemy ship, about which the destroyer had inquired with so much feeling. There was no doubt in their minds now. They could see the three great funnels, towering above tier on tier of decks. She was an armed cruiser, one of the Atlantic liners, Captain Mason decided, in confab with his chief, and she could steam twenty-five or six knots an hour. The ethics of frightfulness scarcely touched him. He knew very little about it. He only knew the squareheads were the devil, meet them where you would. A shell came to advise him of tactics about which all the world talked. He saw that it passed over them, and decided that the fellow's elevation was faulty. It was followed by one which cut away a foretopmast backstay and left a humming all down the spar, but the mast held. It was of steel, one with the lower mast, and while all hands gazed considering this outrage, a shell fell amidst the group, and two of those who had craned out to watch lay writhing on the deck. The captain looked over, calling to the mate, Get them in the cabin, Carter, and see what you can do for them. Make the men stay in cover. Flags caught his eye, fluttering to the raider's yardarm. He fetched his code and read out, Heave to, or I will sink you. And he commented grimly, diagnosing the situation. If I heave to, you will sink me. The juggernaut leaned over heavily, pressed toward the land, and humming like a top newly set spinning. She seemed to know what was required of her and bent to her task jovially. Let her have it, Skip, came from the throats of those who watched. Give her all she knows. Then a shell reached, which pierced the ship's side forward, and they hurried to see its handiwork. A wisp of smoke at once appeared from the scuttle, and when the carpenter returned, he announced that she was hold. Got us just foreside the bulkhead, sir. She's a fire, and you could pass a bucket through the hole they've made. Good, said the commander. Tell the second mate to get the head pump rigged and the hose on her. He added as an afterthought, Clear away the boats aft here, a couple of hands. We may as well be ready in case anything should happen. The men cheered. Was their ship not drawing away? Was not the raider twisting on her helm, too? Possibly he had sighted the column of smoke rising out there in the west. Perhaps he considered he had already cooked the goose. But the juggernaut was not yet out of range. Half a dozen shells came her way, and one of them got the ship's short bowsprit. It was the raider's last shot as she turned and made off at full speed for the south, and with the crash it made, the juggernaut's foretop mast came down quite gracefully, and took up a position alongside. Captain Mason scarcely stirred. He seized his megaphone and gave a new order. Forward there. 
Leckout Gallant and Royal Halyards, main and mizzen. Clue them up. One watch, go on with the pumping. The other, aft to shorten sail, the commander added. He left to ease the pressure, watching still in spite of the strain he endured. He must fight for his own life and the ship's. The grain he carried was wanted at home, and presently would be worth treble its value, unless ships could run the gauntlet and bring it through in safety. He was unaware that the navy, which seemed to have deserted him, was even at that moment sending out messages which would bring him aid. He turned to watch the raider, acknowledged that she had scored, but the great vessel had lost interest in the juggernaut and was bent on escape, smoke driving from her funnels, plunging, smothered in spray. Crossing the stern were those three cruisers, in the wake of the flying raider. It would have been good to watch them, but he dared spare only a passing glance. He saw the leader of them fire, and wondered whether at that range it was possible to do much. He refused conjecture, noted the facts, and continued as before, conning his ship, nursing her as only a master can. The royals and topgallant sails presently hung in their gear, and he saw the mate lead his small group forward to commence, with axes and cold chisels, the work of cutting away the spars which trailed alongside. The ship moved easily now, but she was down by the head, dipping in a fashion that troubled him. She was holed badly forward. Yet it was possible the mast and bowsprit would cause even greater damage than that wrought by the shell. By supreme good luck, or the grace of God, that had taken effect aforeside the bulkhead instead of abaft it. He acknowledged the mercy in the quiet fashion which comes to men of the sea when in the presence of peril. He looked astern and saw the raider melting into the haze, the three who followed dashing in her wake. That was fine. He noticed, too, a signal fluttering on the yard of the leading cruiser and read it. Ship ahoy, it said on the one hand. Are you in immediate danger? On the other. Captain Mason realized that the question had long been hoisted and hurriedly replied with a signal flag, no. He felt the thrill that comes to those who are prepared to give blows as he pulled it aloft. Three of the trawler fleet, called by the cruisers as they swept out in chase, came tumbling to see what passed. They came direct, not by intuition or guesswork, nor by the law which produces a tug when salvage is in the air, but by methodic ordering. Out there, said the message, is a sailing vessel, dismasted and in danger. Go to her assistance. And they were there. Two hours later, a procession was trailing beneath the flying scud. Two trawlers ahead, the juggernaut with her stern in the air and her nose down following, and aft another trawler to give her a jerk if she failed to steer as she should. As a matter of fact, the juggernaut trusted entirely to the pluck of that gentleman who hung on her quarter, could not port or starboard without his aid, and an hour before dawn passed Halbolin and reached a breathing place. She had been much agitated. She had lost men and spars, but she arrived, sent her dead ashore to the sound of muffled drums and the march that wails, sad as the pipers of the north, and came back to sit down and learn the news, to find out why England was at war, to discover what those queer slides on the trawler's decks were for, and to hear miraculous stories of escapes from mines and submarines, and the method adopted by the Admiralty to fight them. And that, if any further word be required, was how a cargo of wheat from Oregon reached England in the early days of her trial, how her crew held out against odds while the men in Flanders stood in ice-cold water holding back the Hun. End of section 59. This recording is in the public domain.